Professor Sam Shah is founder of the Faculty of Digital Health, Chief Medical Strategy Officer at Newman, and former Director of Digital Development at NHSX. He has extensive experience in consulting, health policy, and health tech, and we talk about good decision-making and health leadership roles, how to make clinicians digitally proficient, and some of his biggest failures along the way. I hope you enjoy. So could you tell me a little bit about your story? So perhaps how you got to where you are today? Well, it's probably really uh, interesting for some people, but perhaps not so interesting for other people. Uh, I am, by background, a clinician, so I started life off in dental surgery. But long before that, I actually worked in uh, retail, retail technology, then in financial services technology, and I did a bit in um, shipping and oil before I came back into sort of healthcare mainstream. So when I finished, I worked in primary care for a little while in general dental practice, then in uh, hospital services, and then public health and health economics before I decided to leave and go to consulting, which is where I really got stuck in properly into data, technology, and how we can achieve transformation through using it. And uh, that was a lot of what happened. And thereafter, I've been really lucky to be one of those people that uh, has, I suppose, what people describe as a portfolio career, where I've been able to work in bits of the NHS as a clinician, but at the same time work in clinical commissioning, and then get very involved in healthcare transformation, mainly focusing on digital transformation. And uh, that's probably where I spent the last main part of the last five years and a large part of the last 10 years, mainly focusing on that agenda. So you trained as a dentist and then you left the kind of dental and medicine field and now you've come back what i'm interested in is what kind of learnings did you take from being outside of this whole sphere and bring back to uh, health and policy well as most people find it's often difficult to say no and give things up like i i find it very hard to say no to things so rather than give things up i tend to accumulate and uh that, that probably sums up a lot of my life accumulating things But um, if I think about my work, I've always practiced clinically. So I have, uh, from from when I qualified through to now, I still continue to practice clinically. And whether that's clinically in direct clinical care for patients or in public health, but I still operate clinically. But alongside that, I've had to blend it with a career doing other things. And I guess the nice thing about clinical practices is it gives us the flexibility of working clinically throughout but also doing less clinical work at times and doing more of other things. And that's really the nice thing about clinical work in that you can make it fit in and around your own life and your ambitions. And, uh, you know, one thing I learned early on is there is a career structure and a career pathway, but you don't have to stick to it. And uh, as and when it suits you, you can come off that treadmill or that elevator, whichever the two it is, and step off it and start doing something a bit different. So, Over the last 10 years, mainly, I've done a range of different things, blending a clinical practice, uh, practicing career with also doing other other things. And I think the two go hand in hand. I think I'm sometimes better at roles that I have in commissioning or management or leadership because I understand the clinical context. But it helps me running clinical services, understanding what everyone else in the system has to do, too. So the two things sort of fit together and uh, fit, fit together in a way that I probably wouldn't have envisaged when I first started, but now rely on as part of everything I do. Are there ever downsides to not being on a, you know, a a bread and butter uh, kind of training path? Are there times that you maybe feel lost or, you know, you don't know what to do next? Um, 
there are always times, whether it's in clinical training or otherwise, where we probably all feel lost. People often will feel overwhelmed. There's too much going on. Sometimes there's not enough happening and there's the boredom. Occasionally it's like, what am I doing here? And am I just, uh, fill it, you know, do I have to fill in forms all my life? Because that's what uh, most clinicians seem to do. And there'll always be times, whatever you happen to do, uh, what anyone happens to do, where they might be feeling lost, they might be unsure. And I think that's okay. And there's certainly been times when I'm, I've been unsure and uncertain about what next, what do I go to next? Where do I go to? And if I, you know, if, if I look at my own career, I've been lucky enough to work in clinical practice, public health, management consulting, bits of law, um, and a whole range of other things in clinical leadership and digital leadership. But none of those things were probably purely planned. Some of those things have happened because of things I've done in the past, which then means the opportunities open up in the future. But they're all largely unpredictable. I wouldn't have, if I'd looked back 15 years ago and somebody said to me back then, I would have been a, a director at the national level of the NHS, uh, you know, working on digital development. I wouldn't have been able to predict that. Would I have thought that I would have taken so much time to be involved in digital health and digital health transformation? Probably not. But it's accumulation of different ideas, thoughts, experiences that have probably taken me here. And I would certainly say to anyone that's interested in a varied career, don't let the structure of the system bound you. Almost let the fact that you can achieve anything you want to be your bounds in that. You can do anything you want to if, if you really want to. And don't let anyone stop you. And the worst thing you can do is not trying something. Almost better off trying something and it may not work. You might learn from it more so than not doing it at all and, uh, and, and staying doing just one thing if you want to do more things. And for some people, having a traditional career will suit them because that works for them, their lives, what they're looking for. For other people, they're looking for much more. And I would certainly say from my experience, and this, this is obviously my perspective based on my own experience, that actually it's worth trying those other things. It's worth going out there and branching out. It, and if you've got the ambition and you've got the drive and you've got the determination, give it a go. From the advice that I've been given and the advice that I've read, it seems that the general consensus is that early on in your career, you should be saying yes to a lot of things. You should be accumulating positions and posts and taking up opportunities. And then you get to a stage, which I'm guessing that you're at, where you need to start saying no to more things um, or else you'd be oversubscribed and totally overwhelmed. Are you finding that? Are you finding that you have to say no to more things now? Well, I probably should have learned to say no a lot earlier. I, I wish when I started out, I'd learned to say no and be a little bit more uh, perhaps discerning and discriminatory about which things I say yes to. And one thing I've learned is I almost need my own framework of what are those things that are really important to me and where I want to get to and align to my values and continue perhaps saying yes to those things, either because I need to do them because they're going to earn me an income or because I'm super interested in it as an area that I want to change, develop, uh, have some sort of um, role in. But I also need to learn about the things that I shouldn't say yes to. And I wish I'd done that a lot sooner. Now, it's only through learning and going through it that you discover those things that you're not interested in. You have to try things to work it out. But uh, I'm probably close to that point now. Where I'm learning to say no a bit more and start to give things up. But uh, if I go back 10, 15 years, there were probably things I didn't need to do or get involved with, which I did. Uh, and, and right now I'm probably realizing that actually it's okay not to be doing everything and things go around in circles and some things might seem urgent, but actually rarely are many things that urgent. 
one of the things I was wondering is that, you know, people like yourself who have so many diverse and so many talents, you know, I think the saying is jack of all trades, uh, but maybe, maybe you're a master of all. So you've got so much, um, you know, in terms of academic and policy and experience and it's not really obvious what you should be doing, right? There's like many, many things you could be doing and many ways you could be having an impact. You know, if you're speaking to someone who's younger in their career and they want to develop that portfolio of skills, what are the kind of opportunities that you think are interesting? Because I guess the ones that come across in my head are doing something maybe in policy, maybe going into the investment side. Those are kind of things that are interesting in you. Are there any other things that you would recommend looking at or thinking about? I think it very much depends on the individual and where they want to get to in life and what their interests are. The worst thing would be is for someone to pursue something that they weren't interested in. And I'd always say, think first and foremost about what interests you, what is going to keep you motivated and make you want to do something. But whatever happens, anyone out there listening should avoid doing anything that they're not interested in. And if they don't have that interest, don't do it. And there are certainly times that I've ended up in roles where I probably wasn't 100% interested in them. And even in training, when I think when I was a registrar, there are elements of my of my work as a registrar that I didn't like. And I was in public health, and uh, there, were, there were elements of that work that I definitely was not sort of happy with. And I, if that was my career, I wouldn't have sort of stuck to it. But I think for any of us, whatever we choose to do, it has to be things that interest you. And so if I look at things I've done myself, things that really interested me are working with numbers. You know, that's been really interesting for me. Things that other people might find boring, like looking at deals and working out all the different risks that might take place. And that sort of plays on, on legal regulatory skills. Um, in consulting, helping people solve their problems, those things are interested. I would say I'm probably less interested in being uh, someone who runs a fund or an investment entity of some kind. I don't mind advising those entities, but that's not the sort of thing that personally interests me. But that's just because of what I like doing. But for some people, they're really good at that. There's some clinicians I know who are absolutely amazing at thinking about a fund, where to invest, where that investment's going to mature, how they're going to make change happen in the health service by doing that. And they really like that and they're fantastic at it. Um, but I really would say to anyone that you have to do things that you believe in. You have to do things that you're passionate about. And because if you're not passionate about it, very soon you'll get bored of it and move on to the next thing. Um, you know, and taking your point earlier, uh, you know, I, I would arguably say that I, I am possibly a jack of all trades, but equally I am certainly master of none because uh, I like doing lots of things. And there are certainly people who are much better than me at all of the things I'm involved with. But I do like that having that very sort of generalized career where I can turn my hand to lots of different things. But that's because I, that's what I like doing. Equally, there'll be people who are interested in doing one thing and doing it really well. And I don't think it's an either or. I think we need to have people that like doing lots of different things and people that are super specialized. And it's a bit like medicine itself. There are people who are generalists, whether they're general practitioners or general medics, or they're super specialists and subspecialists. And I think the same exists in our portfolio careers in clinical practice in that you can sort of blend being clinician with doing other things too. So I, I would say definitely pick something that's interesting. And, you know, most people are probably going to try a few different things before they get to the thing and find the thing that they like doing. Like, you know, I, I certainly tried a bit of primary care, a bit of hospital practice, then consulting, then law. And, you know, it took me a while to work out 
exactly what I liked. It probably took me four career changes before I got to the point of realizing that I like a bit of everything, but um, it takes time. So I would certainly say, don't be too hard on yourselves and expect to know where you're going to be right now. You know, the career ambitions people may have when they're finishing med school may center on going into a certain specialty. Actually, at that point, they won't have even been exposed to so many other things, even other subspecialties in medicine they won't have been exposed to. And so give yourself time and space, find the interest point and have lots of discussions, talk to people, get experiences, learn from others. And some of the people listening are going to create new career pathways, new areas of medicine. They're probably going to create new ways of working. And the blend between policy and technology and operations will change over time. You can like all of those things to different extents. I guess if I was to pick out a common thread across all of the roles you've had, it might be that you need to be good at decision making for all of them. And I was wondering if you had any particular strategies or ways of approaching decision making that you, you've learned or you've come across that have, have really helped you. So for me, I uh, approach decision making around degrees of urgency. The first thing I want to know is how important is this decision? Do I need to make this decision and do I need to make it now? Or actually, is this decision something somebody else can make? That's always my first sieve, which is right. Which way is it going? And if it's in the super urgent category, I want to know what the risks are. How difficult is this decision? Is this something that needs to be made within seconds because the system is relying on it? Or do I have more time? What information do I need? What questions do I need to ask? And nothing in decision making is ever binary, and certainly not in public sector. It's, it's never going to be an either or. So I tend to find it's about asking the right questions around a decision. Something somebody said to me when I was in the NHS staff college uh, years ago, this was one of those leadership programs in the NHS. One of the things that decision makers need to be able to do is make progress happen. You're making decisions on the best available information at that point in time. None of us will have all the answers, but we've got to use our instinct to make the best guess at that moment in time that will get to a better outcome. And so part of the decision making is, what sort of change do we want? What sort of transformation do we want? What is it that we want to happen in the system for our patients, for our population, for clinicians? And with that lens, make decisions. But the one thing that none of us should ever do is stand still. Because if we just stand still, change won't happen, progress won't happen. Sometimes we'll make decisions that aren't right when we look back at them. But they were right at that point in time. But we have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to progress, knowing that based on the information you have available right now, you can make a decision. You might need to review it. You might need to change it. But being able to make decisions and not sort of get paralyzed or uh, stuck is really important. And um, part of the reason that sometimes change doesn't happen is it's all often too easy to say, I need more data. I need more evidence. I need to see how it goes. Actually. Those things are useful at points in time, but depending on the amount of urgency, sometimes you just need to make a decision and use your instinct. And if I look at people I uh, elsewhere in other sectors, look at Amazon, look at other big organizations, look at Google, look at anywhere, people are making decisions. They're making what they call bets. They're thinking, okay, based on the information I have, we've got to make a decision. That's what we're going to go with. And in healthcare, we do that all the time with our patients. It's from a policy point of view, we're less good at doing that not bad at doing it but we're not great at doing it yeah there's a really good book that i think you you might have read called thinking in bets by annie duke 
Um, and I guess it kind of alludes to what you're saying, where she preaches to separate the outcome of a decision from you know, the, how good the decision was. So just because something had a good outcome doesn't make it a good decision and vice versa. And I guess that's what, kind of what you're saying about uh, making the best bet you can based on the information you have. Totally. You know, even if I look at my own, what's on my own businesses, sometimes my teams might say to me, oh, this is working really well. And I'll say to them, it might be working really well, but what do we do to get there? Was it an accident or did we actually plan for it to get there? And what about all the things that didn't work so well? And it takes me back to the fact that sometimes we make decisions that are almost passive. They happen and they result in a good outcome. And we then we then accidentally assume that because we achieved that outcome, it was because of our decision making. Well, in actual fact, we didn't nearly have a strategic approach to our decision making. We just got there by accident and vice versa. We look at bad decisions and think we made or bad outcomes. We made bad decisions. In actual fact, we just didn't necessarily have the information at that point in time. So I, I, I do sort of support that approach. And, uh, you know, I think it's I think we have to be very careful and cognizant of the fact that none of us know everything. But at the same time, we do need to have a little bit of foresight that outcomes may happen that may be slightly different from the decision that we've made. I think in terms of decision making in other sectors, so particularly in tech, there's the saying, uh, move fast and break things. And I guess the point of that is to iterate quickly, make decisions quickly, see what the result is, and then change based on that. In health, the downsides are really, really big. Um, you, you know, your app's not going to crash, you can potentially harm actual people. Um, so do you find that sometimes it does that become paralyzing ever? Does it become difficult to make decisions you want to make because, you know, the downsides are so big? I think that it's possible that it could be. But even in healthcare and healthcare technology, we can still apply the same philosophy, but not necessarily at the same pace. And we may have different safeguards in place. So I think the the, the notion still stands. I think it is still possible to sort of, you know, uh, act fast or uh, work fast and, and break things. I think, you know, it, 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 it still stands. But the way we go about it is different. So we might take a different approach to risk assessment. We may incorporate clinical safety into the decision making as part of a, so if you look at any other part of tech, we have multidisciplinary teams. We call them agile teams and we have different team members that bring different expertise and sometimes subject matter experts. Well, in health tech, we should do the same. And where I see it going wrong in health tech is where there isn't strong clinical leadership in those digital health and technology projects. But where there is strong clinical leadership that is able to ask the right questions and take a risk-based approach, then we can still operate just as quickly. But it's knowing what things we can operate quickly on and what things require more discovery or research. And it's about having the right team members that can do that. And I've seen both. I've seen teams that have been phenomenal, but haven't had the right clinical expertise. So they've just gone ahead doing things for the right reasons, but not achieving the right outcome because they haven't thought about the right risk profile. And I've seen other teams where they've been, you know, they had loads of great clinicians on board, but they're not quick enough at making decisions. And then they just get left behind. So there's, there's both. And I don't think, again, like most things I'll say, I don't think there's a wrong and a right, but it is about asking the right questions to help inform the next decision and take take a view. There'll be some things that are not life and death, that are not going to be making life and death decisions. So those things might happen more quickly, like things that deal with health information or connecting patients to clinicians and things like that. There'll be other things that are closer to the diagnostic end. And where it's a more rapid diagnostic, then someone will want to take more time to assess that risk. 
So certainly be good at assessing risk is what I would say when working in a health tech or digital health environment and be willing to be the person that says no, or at least not says no, but says yes, maybe, or no, maybe, but at least have the right approach to working out what can and can't be done in those constraints. And I'll give you an example. Last week, I was talking to one of my team members. They wanted to change the way we do certain diagnostic. And on the surface of it, it was a really good idea. And they wanted to launch this change within days. And as I worked through it with them, I said, look, these are the clinical risks that you haven't thought about, not because you know you didn't want to think about them, but you wouldn't know. And you need to worry about these extra things here. I think once you solve these things, you can go ahead and do it. But why don't you take the next two weeks to solve these problems so that we're not left with the clinical risk? And it's about having that kind of discussion with somebody. So one of the things you've put a lot of work in and done a lot of work in is making inclusive and diverse teams. What's What's the argument for making a diverse team? Because shouldn't it just be a meritocracy where you pick the best players for that team, irrespective of race or gender or any other factor? Absolutely. You know, I couldn't agree more with you. It's really important to pick the best or the optimal team members that can work together, that bring different strengths that make a team operate. But in doing that, how you decide what the optimal team is, there's also the cultures and values of those team members and the problems that we're trying to solve. So if I take a system like the NHS as an environment, the NHS has 1.3 million workers and another, sorry, employees and another half a million workers as well that work across the NHS in addition to that. So almost not far off, 2 million people. Now, the population we treat is one of the biggest populations, you know, 56 million people in England or 65 million people across the whole of the UK. And so we've got a big workforce treating a lot of people. And at the end of the day, people live in communities, they operate in communities, whatever they happen to be. And if we want to treat them and reduce inequalities, we need people that understand those communities, that can think like them, that can put themselves in their shoes, that can experience the same problems those communities experience so that they can come up with the solutions for those communities as well. And if we look at leadership and management and hierarchy across the NHS, you see a distinct lack of diversity. It's a very polar environment. You're not seeing much diversity in most of the hierarchy of the NHS and not much has changed in the last 10 years. And that worries me because if we are going to make the best decisions for the population to achieve the best outcomes, then we need to A, be more inclusive in our decision making, but we also should respect and value diversity amongst our leadership. And I don't just mean race. I mean, yes, race and ethnicity, gender, social deprivation, uh, family status, single parent families. We need everyone in the mix to be involved. And there are good people out there with the right skill set that are going to be very good for the job that should be included in those groups, in those leadership groups. Now, when I look over at the NHS, I still see a club. I see a club of people who are often interconnected to each other through school, through university, through political arrangements, whatever it happens to be. And that group of people will pick people like them. Now, it might be that sometimes some of those people are representing parts of society or can reflect and connect. But quite often, 
if we end up with a very homogenous group where people like us pick each other, then we're not going to see that diversity and we're not going to see the inclusivity in decision-making and we're not going to see better outcomes in society or reduction in health inequalities. And so I would always advocate for having the optimal team for the job, blending the strengths of different players that can work together and creating that diverse environment. And certainly something that I pride myself on in my team when I was uh, in the NHS was having a very diverse team, having a big mixture of people that came from those different backgrounds, different parts of the country, different ethnicities, different social status, all of those things working together because they brought different ideas and we could solve problems in, in another way. Whether that's accessibility online to products and services, whether it's understanding the language needs of different populations, whether it's understanding disabilities, Whatever it happened to be, there are people out there that can help inform these teams. But at the moment, I'm seeing a total lack of that diversity at the top of the NHS. And I certainly haven't seen much change in the last 10 years, which worries me. And uh, I'm still seeing a club there. I'm still seeing employment and appointments happening at a senior level based on not what you know, but who you know. And it may not be intended that way, but that's how it seems to be falling out at times. Now, things are getting a little bit better now, but I still don't think it's good enough. In organizing this interview, uh, Mola Morkin very kindly introduced us. And she told me that I should ask you about uh, your story in which you left uh, the NHSX and NHS England as uh, was a director of digital development. Um, could you share that story? Yeah, I mean, I was certainly coming to the point where my tenure was coming to an end. So I was, uh, my, my time in the NHS was coming to a close and I deciding at that point whether I wanted to move on and do other things, which I chose to. But certainly as I was leaving, I noticed a lot of things. I noticed team members of mine that were struggling, where they were facing challenges in the workplace. I noticed the opportunities and the way they were coming about were not being fairly distributed. And I also noticed a lot of the checks and controls in the system didn't seem to exist. The appointment of senior people seemed to be something that was more, again, who you know, not necessarily whether someone was the best person for the job. And this seemed to be commonplace and certainly not the sort of thing that I wanted to necessarily be part of. But something that does worry me, that how was it that it came about that we end up with an organisation is responsible for such a significant part of transformation in the NHS that has such little structure around it that doesn't even and didn't at that point have a cohesive strategy. And then when you look at the design of the organization, it didn't have a structure that reflected the outcomes it was trying to achieve. And then the resourcing wasn't necessarily built on the skills that were needed to do the job. It was based on what might be available within the organization, but also uh, on existing and pre-existing relationships. And that worries me because it means that we're not creating a public sector which is best for the outcome for citizens and health outcomes, but we're creating an environment that is closer to creating something that's akin to what people describe as an old boys club. And so that's not the sort of environment that I, I don't think I would thrive in and many others wouldn't thrive in either. And uh, certainly many of my team members uh, also left uh, NHS England and NHSX in the weeks and months after I did uh, and are going on to do other things. But my, what the important message from that and the lesson is, is that we will lose talent. We will lose people that can make an impact and a difference 
if we don't create public sector institutions that are designed to make progress happen, but more importantly, designed to help nurture and support talent. Unless we do that, we will not make progress for citizens. So the NHS has recognized that it needs to train thousands of clinicians uh, to be digitally proficient for the future. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on achieving that. Is it is it more e-learning modules? Um, there are lots of people and lots of e-learning modules out there. I would say that almost definitely is uh, not going to be the sort of um, thing I think is going to solve us and get us out of this. I personally feel that the cultural shift is more important. Make it acceptable for future clinicians and healthcare workers to use technology. Make them part of solving the problem of technology. And uh, on top of that, also make them part of the solution. So my own view would be we need a blended program for undergraduates across any discipline in healthcare. We should have opportunities for them to get involved in leadership and technology, both of those things. Some will lean towards, towards policy. Some will lean more towards coding and designing technology, but give them those opportunities. Second to that, we should also be creating some ongoing learning mechanism that when people are in their roles, we support them in their development. And that, again, does not mean more e-learning. That means give them immersive opportunities, allow them placements in technology, healthcare technology organizations, give them the space to operate that will teach them the skills they need to themselves be strong in the future. So these are the sorts of things that I'd be keen to like, you know, see happen out there. And I've seen in other parts of the world. I've visited different parts of the world in my previous in my previous career, and uh, you know, being able to engage with other colleagues in other university teaching environments where they create those immersive programs. And I'm certainly keen with the organisations I work with, uh, you know, in England and the UK, that we create environments where medical students of the future are going to get some leadership development, technology skills, design skills, so that when they finish, and even whilst they're undergrads, they can start preparing solutions based on what they see. And, you know, people like me are at the wrong end of our careers to be coming up with all the solutions. We don't, we, we're too jaded. We've seen too much. So our minds are cluttered with what we know. People at the beginning of their careers, and if I look back at myself 20 years ago, I wasn't constrained by the structure of society right now. I was much more open and free thinking to different ideas. So it's much more creative what I came up with. And I would say if we can bring a bit of that and allow our undergrads and new to qualified uh, healthcare professionals to be involved in design and technology that will support us, we'll have much better solutions. And it's that kind of entrepreneurism that we need to support. But at the moment, the structure of the system, the teaching, and almost this over-reliance on e-learning is taking the fun and the creativity out of what could be a better future. But I would say there's a place for e-learning and definitely around statutory mandatory training perhaps but i don't think it's there to be the only way we get that creativity and those skills to individuals and this is more than knowing how to use my smartphone or a computer this is more to get into the thought process around how to design better solutions for patients one of the things I've seen you do really well, I guess, is in terms of personal branding. So I think it's clear that you have a strong personal brand. People know what you do and I guess what you stand for as well. Are there any particular strategies you use or ways you approach personal branding or any advice you would have? So it's so funny we talk about this. So I didn't really realize this personal brand thing. I, I had didn't really understand it. And, and you know, when I was working in retail and banking and finance places like that, 
brand meant something else. It basically meant leaflets and posters and advertising. And um, it's it's something that sort of happened over time. I've noticed there's more and more people that have these brands. And funnily and really bizarrely, I've never purposefully tried to create a brand. I've just kind of been out there and, and saying things. So I'm probably not the best person to explain personal brand because I don't think I do it that well, but I just sort of do it by accident. But one thing I would say is there's certain lines that I draw, and, and I do this deliberately. If I think about, generally speaking, on social media, I tend not to post personal stuff. I tend to have a divide between my personal life, my non-work life, and my work life. And I tend to deliberately use my social media platforms mainly for my work-related things. I, I, I very rarely will post anything personal. I think the last time I posted something personal on social media would have been like about five years ago, I think, if, if that. So I tend to, to do that, to demarcate things. I tend to also stick to areas that I'm comfortable with, which is public health, infectious disease, digital health and technology, uh, dentistry, health policy, uh, and healthcare and, and online services tend to be the areas I tend to stick to. If somebody came to me about some sort of remote subspecialty that I have no idea about, I tend, to, I would not really get involved in that online or otherwise. Um, I also like doing things like occasionally writing. So I will occasionally write a blog and post things like that. Um, and I like to do it myself. I like to write those things myself. Um, and I've had lots of offers of people writing these things for me, but I've deliberately chosen not to do that. So, um, you know, those are the sorts of things I like to do. But I would say just have a go, write something, put something out there, think about what you want to say. But always remember, whatever you put out there as part of what people refer to this sort of brand is almost there forever. So you just have to think really carefully and sensitively about what goes out there. But that shouldn't stop anyone. Um, and whether you have a brand or not and how you choose to exercise it will be a personal choice. Some people like to use online platforms. Other people like to do it more quietly. Again, there's no wrong or right to this. It doesn't really matter, but just do something you're comfortable with. And that might mean something as basic as having an online presence in LinkedIn, or it might be something as basic as having a Twitter account. You know, and, and to give it another spin on this, I'm not very good with something that people refer to as Instagram. I, I, I don't use Instagram. I don't really get it. It kind of bypassed me. Even Facebook sort of bypassed me. It's not something I've ever really dealt with. So those are platforms I'm not very comfortable with, but other people are. And it, and it takes me back to there is no wrong or right. It's just whatever works for you as an individual and allows you to express yourself in a meaningful way. Um, but what I would say is just think about whether or not you want to mix your personal and professional. And there's nothing wrong with mixing it, but just know where you're going to draw your boundaries. Because once you've done that, it's often very difficult to reverse. It's easy for someone like myself to look at you and look at your career and be very, you know, enamored and be like, how well, how did he do all of that? And what I'm really interested in, and this is obviously if you're comfortable to share, is any big failures you've had along the way? I've had so many failures. I have done everything from fail at exams all the way to fail in projects that I've run. Uh, failing in bits of my job, probably still fail at like time managing my time. And um, there are lots of things that we all fail in. Uh, but I have to say, I've learned more from my failures than I probably have from my successes. And if I look at my failures, they there are some 
things that sort of span all of those. It's about where I set the risk style on sometimes setting the risk style too far, making decisions that are probably too risky. Uh, other things like not being organized enough and about asking the right questions. And sometimes just not putting enough time into planning and forecasting. And uh, the biggest one for me is taking on too much. That's probably the biggest point of failure for me is taking on far too much. So those are the sorts of things that uh, you know, I'd reflect on. But, you know, I've had some big failures. I remember being working in a, an oil and shipping transaction once, which went completely wrong, you know, where it went badly wrong with lots of very big financial losses. That was not good. Um, I've worked in healthcare organizations where we have failed to deliver services uh, in a way that are efficient and timely. And that's not been good. That comes down to planning and governance. You know, there are things like that that I think we can all learn from. And I certainly learn all the time. Every single week I learn from something. And about also learning to be able to say, I don't know and no. Those are two things. And it's not something that comes easily when you're an undergrad. When you're an undergrad, you're almost expected to know everything and come out the other side. And you've had to pass these exams. And passing the exams and the process passing exams is a test of your knowledge. And thereafter, the same people that have tested you, if you were to say to them, I don't know, you know, there's a tension there. Actually, the most important thing is, is say, I don't know and say it early on. And but don't just say, I don't know. Say, I don't know. This is what I think it could be. This is how I think I could get to the answer. Can you help me or direct me someone that can help me? Or this is what I think is the right thing to do. What do you think? And don't be afraid to talk to other people. The best advice I sometimes get is from uh, colleagues, friends, where it's a two way mentorship uh, where I'll pick their brains for ideas and they'll do the same with me and we'll both challenge each other to then make us do something better the next time. And that's really important. Have trusted friends, have a trusted safe space that you can go to when you think things are not working so you can talk to that person. And it's not one person, it's like a network of people. That network is so, so important at every stage in your career from when you first are an undergrad all the way through to even now. And, and I rely on those people right now as I did 20 years ago. We've spoken about this a lot throughout, but I just want to ask it on its own. Are there any particular habits or ways you've approached things that have helped you along your career? Probably not. No, that's probably not a very nice thing to say, but uh, I, I don't think I've ever thought about things in that careful a way. But I guess certain things that have helped me um, are forming relationships and networks, speaking to other people and um, making sure I talk to lots of different people and get different views. Connecting with people and maintaining relationships is very important, and I and I like doing that. It doesn't suit everyone, but it sort of suits me. And reading loads, I love to read. I love to find out what's going on. I like to I like to know things, and that's always helped me. You know, finding out things and and having some facts and understanding numbers has always been a good place for me. So that's the sort of thing that works for me. But that's very personal. What might work for me may not work for everyone else, but I do like to spend time getting to know people, talking to people, forming those relationships and knowing things that will help me, but also help others. The biggest thing that I probably benefited from in my career is talking to people and trying to help other people. So when people come to me for career advice, for help, it's rare that I will say no. I will try and find a way to do that because from that process, I myself will probably learn something. Do you have any specific pragmatic tips on relationship building and maintaining those relationships? Are there any, because um, I've noticed this as well, and I, I I was wondering if there were any specific ways in which you, you approach that. Um, 
what I would say is generally most people you re out, reach out to and connect with, contact, email, speak to, most people, by and large, be willing to give you some of their time, either if it's then or later on. Often the reasons people can't is because they're already too constrained. They've got too many other things going on. They're very busy. But most people will say yes. And based on who it is, think about what you both offer. Because it's a two-way thing with any relationship. Like two people can talk and connect and might get on socially. What do they have to offer each other? That's very important. And Think about what, what you're also going to bring to the table in a discussion. And being a mentor-mentee is very different to just a sort of more you know, relaxed friendship. But I would say find people that you can connect with, identify with, where you've got something in common. Um, that's always a good starting point. And, 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 and ensure that, you know, not everything is necessarily about work. Uh, you know, some of my most interesting friendships are people that may have started off as work contacts, but actually because you then discover you've got lots of other common interests and uh, more generally just get on, you know, you'll, you'll find those things go on for years. And, and it's a bizarre thing because years later, you're leveraging off those relationships because of those friendships that exist and you'll be recommended for things and vice versa. And that tends to happen. Now that doesn't ha help with the sort of old boys club that exists because, you know, but it does help making introductions where there may be new opportunities and that's always very useful. Um, and one of the things I now value is being able to go to my network and ask for help or at least connect people that can help each other. I hope you enjoy that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you. I would really say to anyone listening, one thing that you've got to do is if you've got an idea and you're just interested in exploring it, find someone that's either worked in that area or that's going to be able to give you some advice and just meet them for a coffee these days online and just talk your idea through. You never know. The worst they'll say is not a great idea, but you're better off talking about it than kind of leaving it. And whatever you choose to do, do something that you're happy doing. Do something that you get up in the morning wanting to do. That is so important. So avoid picking specialties, career pathways based on what might seem conventional. Pick your choices based on what works for you. And what works for you now might not be the thing that works for you in 10 years. So don't be afraid to change your pathway and your course as time goes on.